You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. My name is Susanne Kalutsa, and I'm CEO here at the House of Literature. It is my great pleasure and honor to introduce to you tonight's guest of honor, acclaimed Bosnian-American author, essayist, and critic, Alexander Hemon. Hemon is the author of four novels, two short story collections, and a host of titles in various other genres. Hemon quickly established himself as one of the most exciting literary voices working in the English language, which his debut novel, Nowhere Man, before his second novel, The Lazarus Project, saw wide critical acclaim and gathered a large and dedicated following. No wonder then that he has been a frequent and beloved guest at the House of Literature, lastly in 2015, to the delight of many of his Norwegian fans. In addition to his many books, Hemon also makes music under the name Cielo Hemon and works as a screenwriter, having worked with the Wachkowskis on Sense8 and The Matrix Resurrections. Hemon's most recent book is the novel The World and All That It Holds, now out in Norwegian translation by Jon-Erik Børlingren. This work of historical fiction, which begins in Sarajevo in 1914 and takes us to Shanghai over three decades later, is a sensational accomplishment in both setting and story. We follow Rafael Pinto, a young apothecary who falls in love with Usman, a handsome soldier, during the First World War. Their love takes Pinto across all of Eurasia in what is a masterclass of world building and character. Set in a multicultural Europe in great social upheaval, Hemon deploys a distinctly lyrical prose, mixing languages and expressions from a long list of cultures, showing a broad and varied history and a multilingual world. The result is a highly original yet grandiose story of undying love and one man's fight to save something worth living for as the world collapses around him. To talk with Hemon tonight, we have poet, editor, and longtime friend of the House of Literature, John Freeman. John is the editor of the literary magazine Freemans, in which Hemon has made several contributions over the years, including the most recent and final edition, Conclusions. So please welcome Alexander Hemon and John Freeman. Thank you. It sounds like there might be some Bosnians here. <laughs> yeah. I, I take them everywhere, wherever I go. Yeah. Sasha calls it the Bosnian network. Yeah. It's mighty, but not well organized. <laughs> we once had an event in Tokyo, and in the very back, there was a man standing there. And how did you know he was Bosnian? Well, he had a red star on his lapel, and he looked like Karl Marx. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know if he was Bosnian, but he, um, I knew he was from former Yugoslavia because of that. Now I'm entangled in this. And then afterwards, he came to me to sign. In Japan, they deliver you know, visit, visit cards or business cards. And he said Suleiman, spelled the Bosnian way, and there was a red star. And it said Tokyo Spring. And it turned out that he was a member of an anarchist collective <laughs> in Tokyo and fed homeless people, which is illegal in Tokyo, 
and you know, protested against war criminals. There was a temple in uh, Tokyo consecrated to the victims of war that also included 1,200 war criminals. And so he was protesting there, looking like Karl Marx. And I said, let's have coffee. <laughs> yeah. So this book, uh, this extraordinary book, begins probably around the beginning of that diaspora, which created the Bosnian network, as you would call it, in Sarajevo in 1914, in a city that Sasha describes as the city where God said goodnight and never came back in the morning. And you follow uh, Osman and Pinto. Pinto, who's a uh, pharmacist, you meet him on page one. He's working in a pharmacy on the day that the Archduke Ferdinand is assassinated. Uh, the world explodes. He gets conscripted into the Austro-Hungarian army. And in the army, he meets Osman, uh, a, a Muslim guy, fall in love, and they start uh, a, a long love affair that is doomed by this, this kind of refugee catch-22 picaresque structure of, of the times in which that you follow them to Galicia uh, in, into basically the crumbling Austro-Hungarian empire um, all the way to Shanghai. Central Asia and then Xi'an and then Shanghai, yeah. So one of the things that's extraordinary about the book is that not only is it a love story, not, a, not only is it a kind of chronicle of a part of World War I that's not often talked about and the extended wars which followed on the back of it from the Russian Revolution to the Japanese bombing of uh, Shanghai, the, it is also a story about God. And there's, at one point the narrator says, this would be a crisis of faith if I had ever had faith. <laughs> so I, yeah, I want to ask boy, you, yeah. as a godless <laughs> infidel, what business do you have writing a book about the existence or, or the arguments that these characters have with God? Yeah, I mean, what business do I have writing about people in, from, who live in love in 1914? And this is what fiction does. It sort of put yourself in the mind, try to, and work to put yourself in the minds of people who are, um, you are like them to some extent. There's an overlapping, but also they're not like you. And that, that is the fun. It's... Um, you know, a lot of my books look like I, I'm really writing about myself, but I'm not. There's a part that is like myself, and there's a part that is entirely different. And I like that. And so, you know, I'm, I'm an atheist, not an agnostic. But I can imagine an agnostic's argument against God, particularly in a situation which, you know, as the book starts in 1914, Pinto and Osman, um, they pass through a series of wars where the world is destroyed, then built up a little, then destroyed again, and so on and so on. And so that's kind of, it's, it's one of those agnostic questions. Why would God do such things, right? What is the point of it all? This perpetuating human suffering, why, right? And, you know, and so Pinto, because of, of, of Jewish faith, he wonders why would God torture Isaac, who's about to be sacrificed by Abraham, right? So he tells Abraham, you must kill your son. Abraham says, all right. And so why would... No one thinks about the kid, right? And so Pinto identifies with the kid. Why? How did he feel when his father was about to slit his throat on an altar, right? And the book said, uh, the God, God said, sorry, I'm mixing languages. God said, oh, never mind now. I was kidding. <laughs> you don't have to kill your son this time. Maybe next time. We'll see. <laughs> uh, and so, I, you know, all these questions to a thinking person. And Pinto is raised in a traditional family, instead of as people were raised a lot. In, the, in early in the 20th century when they couldn't get out of the social context and felt obligated to their traditions and family and so on. And so he had, his argument is not just a, um, against God as such, but against the, um, a tradition that constrains him. 
and, and for which he at the same time longs very much, right? He wants to go back to Israel, see his mother, um, but he, and he thinks about his father who died before the war. And so it's, it's an argument against that kind of what his father stands for, the sort of patriarchal authoritarianism, right? That is common in uh, traditional patriarchal societies, whatever the, the religion is. And so God is also an argument against father. And his argument against father is, and his father was the, a believer and you know, railed about his sins, particularly when he suspected that he might be homosexual and so on. So I think that is not that hard to imagine. For a book in which God plays a large role, at least as, a, as an argumentative point, if not maybe a kind of metaphysical, cosmological ceiling, there's not a lot about shame in the book. And I wonder if, you, if that's a strategic decision. Yes, I mean, I'd never, I, I, I mean I'm heterosexual, and um, what I've learned, it's not that I have to prove my credentials and the right to write about homosexual people, but I did work on Sense8, one of the queerest shows ever, and worked with people, and, and as a writer and actors and so on, and, and learned from that experience, and then thinking and reading many other books, that shame is this, you know, a heterosexual society is um, um, founded on shame, right? It's differently distributed, right? Because among the normative people, right? The heteros heterosexuals, right? And so a resistance to that kind of normativity is to abandon shame. And it's one of the things I like about, you know, I don't know, dance culture of Berlin, for instance, because there are spaces that are just shame-free, which I love greatly because of the normative heterosexual man. Even I am liberated from that when I enter such a space because it's a hard work constantly to negotiate the propriety of what you're doing, feeling, and so on, right? And, and shame also inf always inflicts pain upon others, not just upon you who might be feeling ashamed because feeling shame also endorses systems of shame. So I did not want... And shame is often obviously... Um, uh, conveyed by way of pathologizing homosexuality, which is what all fascists do all the time, that it's not normal, right? And so I did not want to dramatize that. At the same time, for all that to be functional, there has to be a structure, a societal structure that reinforces that. There's schools, um, religions, governments, all that. This is what you know, people have been dealing with for centuries. And Pinto and Osman, they passed through a series of lands and situations that are entirely deprived of any kind of government, right? The only time when they, um, or Pinto is um, in, in the context of some kind of social structure is at the very beginning before the Archduke is killed, right? Where the law and orders they were in uniforms and you know the hierarchies and what's normal, what's not normal, and then past that, societies and worlds crumble, right? And that's accidentally, uh, as it were, incidentally uh, liberating. He doesn't have to worry about it. He only worries because who's going to judge him? He's never at home to be judged. Mm. You know, and it's, it's a revolutionary time, not only because the Bolsheviks are on it, but because there no, there's no society in which they could be frowned upon and be punished by being excluded from the society, which is how shame works, right? People are shamed and then excluded from, a, from, the, from the society, but there's no society to be excluded from. So we watch as uh, Pinto and Osman tumble through one conflict after another, basically war zones. Um, but within those conflicts, within those scenes, uh, Pinto is often in a, in a state of almost uh, abstraction. At one point, he's in a cave. He's often looking up at the sky. He's often 
con confined. When, at, you know, when he, at one point he's nearly blown up and there are corpses on top of him. And there's an, a, a level of abstraction that's Beckett-like in a sense. And I, I, I'm highly aware of some of your political thoughts and you've written about um, the fate of refugees and having been someone who came to the U.S. and was stranded there yourself. I feel like this novel is also trying to, to think about what it's like and to portray existentially what it's like as a, as a refugee through, um, th through nothingness, through darkness. And I, I wonder if you can talk about the challenges of writing a story in which you put characters in spaces in which the field of vision, the, the area around them, is, is kind of nothingness. That's an excellent question. <clears throat> what I decided very early, in fact, is I want to be kind of a refugee epic. I think that the fundamental structure of narrative structure, sort of an earliest or the earliest structure uh, in human history is, is epic, right? Because I've grown to believe, largely writing this book, that um, migration results in narration. In fact, I have my own little formula. Narration is migration squared. And that uh, humans, before you know, literacy, before um, solidly established societies, they would just move through the world and narrative um, structures were containers of information, right? This is before literacy, before any systems of transmission of knowledge, before books or let alone print, or when, at least when the books were rare and only available to the elites in, I don't know, Mesopotamia, right, 3,000 years BC. And so narrative contains human experience and that experience is useful for survival, right? And so, which is why I think, this is my little theory, that earliest forms of um, narrative uh, works of art are epic, right? Gilgamesh and uh, uh, Beowulf, well, that's much later, but you know, uh, the Odyssey, and then Beowulf, and then Don Quixote, and, there, and then Ulysses, and so on, right? And so I always wanted to put Pinto and Osman through this kind of grinder, that they move through space, and the space is kind of rudimentary, right? It's not that it's before civilization, outside of civilization, which is how Gilgamesh or the Odyssey work, right? There's the city in Gilgamesh that Gilgamesh is the king of, and there's the Ithaca, and then they get out of it, and it's weird stuff happens. Cyclops or mm -hmm. the underworld, you know, and uh, or, um, um, what are they called? You know, the Skillan Haribdis and all that. And so I wanted to take Pinto and, uh, and Osman out of that as in the first uh, chapter, sort of organized social space and put them to the grinder of migration and then um, a narrative would come out of it, right? And so I took out all the parts. If you read the book, sort of there are gaps between the chapters. And so all the chapters in which they do things are really, they contain conflict. It's sort of a, an editing move. Eliminated, Hitchcock said, Drama is life minus the boring parts, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so I took out the boring parts. <laughs> and so in that sense, it's kind of abstract and absolute and kind of apocalyptic. And, and the classic um, um, epic narratives, those kind of leaving that protected societal space, or relatively speaking, sometimes lead to the foundation of the empire, like in the Enid, right? Or uh, when... Um, Odysseus comes back to Ithaca, he kills the 
um, um, Penelope suitors and then the order is restored. There's always this thing about restoring order in some ways or establishing a new order. Mm. Whereas I also decided that it would be a new order. There would be no new order established as such. So they would just, that my heroes are not as heroic as Ulysses or Gilgamesh. They cannot kill monsters. They, they, their superpower is love and the ability to survive because of that love. And so that, I suppose that required a certain amount of, not so much of abstraction, sort of dramatizing the conflict, the apocalyptic aspect of that, because mm. one of the recurring motifs in the book is that the God creates worlds and destroys them, creates worlds and destroys them arbitrarily, right? And this is the, a, a life of a refugee, particularly of someone who's passing through conflicts in their life or through space that is full of conflict. And those words ref, uh, repeat like a fra- refrain. So rather than having this sort of um, locomotive that's propelling the narrative forward that's familiar, you're, you're basically like this is not um, Tom Hanks saying life is like a box of chocolates yeah. and winding up in the civil rights and every sort of high point of American post-century life. You're picking the really obscure battles and sort of wars that people have forgotten um, and you're putting your characters in, in cities that are not really that much well written about, except for Shanghai towards yeah. the end. And the, there are these refrains, and there are also quite a few Sasha-isms. At one point you say, um, home, <laughs> home is where people know when you are not there. Yeah. Um, and there, and you know, there, I, I sometimes wish I had a Sasha eight ball and I'd just <laughs> shake it, and like one of these statements would come up. And I, I love the fact that the, the book is sort of cycling in these kind of attempts to try to explain the world, um, and some things are explainable. And, and one of the things I found, which you once told me in a story, was, was a kind of detail about um, someone who had walked uh, into Sarajevo during the Balkan War uh, away from Serbians. And I wonder if you can tell me, when you're pulling from stories that are told to you, you know, what, it, what do you feel like your responsibilities are? Um, you know, as in the, the story I just mentioned, did you, did you say to that person, you're going to be conscripted into my book, and don't worry, no, it's going to be okay. Well, I mean, I wrote about this person, and um, he's a Bosnian who, for Bosnians who are here, they wouldn't understand. He was from Foča and was imprisoned in a effectively death camp. Um, uh, Foča was horrible, even by the standards of the Bosnian war, rape camps and mass murder. And, um, and at some point, he was um, used as a live wall. The Serbs put the, the Bosnian prisoners in front of their positions during the fight combat with, uh, with the Bosnian army. And then he was blown up. And then when he woke up, there was no one around except this beautiful man in a white robe who then led him from Foča to Sarajevo. If you know the geography, that's, that's insane. Through the woods. And then he came down Sarajevo through the Serbian positions, right, incredibly, and survived miraculously. Um, so I, I wrote about him. You can find it on the internet. Um, and it's an amazing story. He's a friend. I check in with him. He and his husband are the first intra-Bosnian gay marriage that I know of. I'm sure there are more than one, but they are my friends. And so, I mean, the other things that I wrote, I always absorbed other people's stories, and often people I know. There's people who told me stories who were in the Bosnian War, because the contemporary. And this is, I guess it's coded in, in history, but it's also recognizable as this sort of my refugee epic, right? So refugees, I would think, would recognize some of those things. Mm. Particularly refugees who actually had to cross land, right, um, and get to get from point A to point B because there's this physical difficulty 
of getting from point A to point B, right? Where do you find the food? This guy ate um, wild uh, carrots and um, wild onions, that sort of thing, and, and leaves from um, trees right, for, for a week and, and lost a lot of weight and miraculously survived. Um, he thought that he was led saver by an angel. And so, and this, I, I interviewed him and talked to him and, and discovered him as he were, and I can't remember, how, someone I knew told me you should talk to this guy, another Bosnian. I had already conceived of the novel. Right? This is not before the novel. I already conceived of Pinto going from Sarajevo effectively to Shanghai through the lands in which he would be you know, relying only on his own wits and skills and, and luck, as it were. So that is, and the, all the people who are getting from Libya trying to get to Norway or Germany, this is what they're going through. Except mm. my people go through deserts, not, not on the boats. Mm. But it is this. Right? You, do not, you have to just get to the next point and survive between point A and point B. And the next thing is between point B and point C. So that's not an abstraction. There's a, there's a structural similarity in the, in the plight of refugees around the world because they do not know if they're going to make it where, where they want to go. Right? And they're, how difficult no it is they're, to, they're no, to communicate. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this is a, a, an extraordinary book because it is a, a symphonic and harmonic sonic experience written in more than 10 languages. You know, I think it's probably the only novel I've ever read in which there's Chinese Uyghur words, Espanol, Ladino, and Bosnian. Yeah. Um, not to mention German and French. And I'm, I'm Kyrgyz and Tajik. <laughs> exactly. But you know, the, the, this is. I have a question for you, which is, you know, this this book is precipitated by the the collapse of empires and the creation of new nation states. And that those nation states artificially divide people who otherwise would have been in the same geographic region and had a sort of collective identity. Simultaneous, a lot of people in this book are divided by languages, and yet the book celebrates languages and it embraces them. And I, I wonder if you can talk about that dichotomy. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I realized writing the book, I don't know what I know or don't know before I start writing a book. It's, it's partly research. I had to read all these other books that I had not read before. But also, you intensely think about things. One intensely thinks about things for a very long time, right? And I, my general belief is that literature and art in general, at least literature I like, it is not just reflecting what we know. And, and if it does that, it's merely reproducing knowledge. But I believe that literature and art generate knowledge and a kind of knowledge that is not available otherwise, just like math does it with its own methods. And so, and that also particularly applies to language, right? Literature creates language that becomes, in many cases, standardized, right, in, in terms of nation forming. But I also grew to believe that migration generates language. So if you're moving through a space where not everyone speaks the same language, as a means of survival, you have to learn the words along the way. What is the word for water? In Kyrgyz, if you're stuck in, in the mountains in, in um, Kyrgyzstan, today is Kyrgyzstan, in Central Asia, and so Pinto, who carries a little girl who sees his daughter uh, through that area, they have to learn the word for water because everyone's thirsty and they might die in the desert, right? So this is how you learn language. It is also that I learned, and this was why Pinto, I always knew that Pinto would be multilingual. His, um, Mother tongue is Ladino or Spaniel, as they called it in Sarajevo, which is a language that Sephardic Jews brought from the um, you know, 15th century Spain. And um, most of them, or all of them, in fact, moved to the Ottoman Empire and then spread across 
the empire and carrying Ladino while absorbing local languages, right, in various ways. And so Ladino, Espanol was spoken, still spoken between Bosnia and in Iraq, if there are still Sephardi Jews. And when those Jews spread towards Shanghai, some of the richest um, families that followed the British Empire were actually of, of, of uh, Ladino, I mean, Sephardic origin, like the Kadu in Shanghai, Kaduris in Sassoons. And so languages, as they move through space with migration, they are transformed by that experience of migration. And so I, I talked to a friend of mine, um, a Bosnian friend, who she's, her area of expertise is uh, Ottoman history. She teaches history of Islam in Toronto. And she taught me this term of macaronic language. And in her work, she found out that, you know, in medieval Bosnia, early 15th or 16th century Bosnia, there would be Slavic words or texts written in Arabic and then mixed in Turkish words, right? And so the idea of a macaronic language is the language, it's common among immigrants, I recently recognized it. If your family is displaced, say a Bosnian family, the kids might speak the native, the, the host country language, Norwegian, but the parents don't speak it that well. And at some point, in certain situations, they would mix those two languages because there's no word in Bosnian for this new Norwegian thing, and the kids do not know the word in Bosnian for something that is you know, part of the experience and don't understand it. And so they meet somewhere in the middle. It's a macaronic language, so the sentence can... Con um, contains several languages. All of the Bosnians here, I, I would bet a large amount of money, have experienced that in some way or another. <laughs> and so, and, and also grew to believe that every language at some point in its development was macaronic. English was Anglo-Saxon, and then the Normans came, right? And they started talking, using all these languages. Now it's all these Latinate French words. And so on, and Bosnian, of course, has layers of... Um, Turkish and Persian Arabic words that came by the way of Turkish, then the German words for the simple uh, technology, the word in Bosnian for the zipper is Reisfeschlus. <laughs> because before that you had only the rope. <laughs> you untie the rope, drop the pants, and then tie the rope. And then the German, the Austrians brought the Reisfeschlus. <laughs> and now there are, you know, there are all these Italian words that came by way of trade with the uh, Venetian Republic, but also by way of you know, San Remo Music Festival. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, the, every language, particularly language, and it's all, you know, English uh, um, absorbed languages from their colonial um, uh, from their colonies, but a, a place like Bosnia, the Balkans, where the empire just piled on top of it, they all brought new language. Mm. So language in, in, as, a, as, a, as a concept is inherently macaronic. It's only the nationalists sort of fantasize that there was some point in the past where it was pure. There were no foreign words in it, right? It just, you just they, as nationalists do, they pick one point in history where everything looks clean. <laughs> You know, it's like your parents tell you, clean your room, and then you show them your desk, and everything under the bed is still shit. <laughs> you know, so done, I did it. And so, and I, I realized that I love that. I love that about language, and that, that the very act of what I was doing, and I'm not the only one doing it, everyone is doing it. Juno Diaz did it. His, you know, Oscar Wilde is a lot of Spanish untranslated words, because mm -hmm. this is how people's Abdul native Razak. language... Huh? Abdul Razak. Yes, yes. Yeah. You know, and so for, for the population like Bosnian and or Latino population in the United States, that's just everyday life. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to use that in a book. I wanted Pinto to be multilingual constantly and then to keep learning 
the languages and keep absorbing new words into his experience. I wonder if you could read just a tiny bit <coughs> um, from the, the top, walking to the apotech to, to um, you cannot fathom my rules, because it's, it's an example of how Sasha braids this thinking into the narrative. Walking to the apotech, which is the family pharmacy or his pharmacy, his mind infested with all the languages, Pinta would on different days recall a different name for the stork, which was thus always the same and then also not. Sometimes it was Hasida, often Roda, but it would be Lelik in his father tongue after he'd recall how Signor Padre, his father, had used to dress him down for not studying the Torah, for caring more about his attire and cigarettes than the word of God, for being rude to customers by not looking up from his Austrian books while they were trying to talk him, for disrespecting the elders and their wisdom, for daring to be so different from everything his body had imagined and hoped for. Kali bivir alla moda, he railed. Sometimes Rafa could not even understand what Padre was saying, his anger relegating his vocabulary to the earlier centuries where fulminant prophets and absolute prohibitions reigned. On such days, the Lelik um, would glare at him, which is Lelik is the Spaniel word for the stork, but also a Turkish word for the stork. The Lelik would glare at him from its perch as if he had flown from 15th century España in order to judge him in Sarajevo. There had been a time before the war when he'd wanted to write a poem about the stork, something perhaps that would have echoed Baudelaire, whom he had read in German, but he'd aborted his attempt after realizing that the only proper way to do it would be to deploy all the words for the stork he possessed, and maybe even some he didn't. Hasida, Roda, Hasida is in um, Hebrew. Roda, it's also the word for kindness. Hasida, Roda, Roda, Lelek, Storch, maybe even the French word, whatever it was. Once upon a time, everyone on earth had the same language and the same words. Now there were a lot of disparate words for each of the things the Holy One created, and it was because the Meredo had asked stupid questions and had not kept their faces close to the ground. Who was it that made the house for birds? Who fed them? Who taught the baby storks to open their beaks for a frog? Who singled out the poor weasel? Who taught man to open his mouth and speak? Who put the chatter of voices into Pinto's head and everywhere outside it? And why do the voices and the words never stop? You cannot fathom my rules. Thank you. So the period in which this book takes place from 1914 to 34 or so, um, it, it's a period of the so-called beginning of the great game. And one of the things that Sasha does that I quite enjoy and I want you to talk about is that you, you sideline all the, the people that defined and framed the great game as theirs. And so you have a British spy who, whose manuscript is part of the book, but which the narrator kind of um, argues with. And you have one American spy who appears on an elevator um, in, in Shanghai at, yeah. at some point. And I, I wonder if you could talk about how you place those characters in the ways that they previously framed this time period. The great game was... Um, the rivalry between the British and the Russian Empire was the great game because the Russians had designs on you know, uh, British colonies in, um, in Asia, in South Asia, like India, Nepal, and Afghanistan, which they eventually ended up in, whereas the Brits had designs on Central Asia, which is now Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, right? And so the great game was constant haggling over that. And it precedes um, the revolution or even the World War I. So... Um, 
there was a spy and this historical character, and this is kind of where it started, who crossed the, the Himalayas and big mountains to get into Central Asia in 1918 after the revolution to see if they could you know, maybe take that over the Brits. <clears throat> but he's a, he's a side character, kind of Deus Ex Machina, and there's an American, American sort of, they were not involved in the great game, but they were generally, <laughs> to this day, they endorse imperialist projects. And so um, they feature in that. I, I decided at the beginning of, of this project, I decided there would be no Americans in it at all. <laughs> but then this British spy is in Shanghai, and Pinto goes to meet him at this hotel, and then he, they take an elevator up, and then out of nowhere, this American shows up in the elevator, Henry Krantz. And I just started, and this is what I like about um, writing. I mean, some people have everything thought out before they start writing. I write books to see what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, um, a, an American photographer, it was an American photographer, Gary Unogrand, who said, I photograph things to see what things look like photographed. <laughs> And so I write books to see what happens in them. And so Henry showed up in the elevator, right? And he's young and um, ambitious, a Princeton graduate, and, um, and then ends up being a spy and also a New York Times correspondent in Vietnam much later, where he, where he dies. And so, I, so I, I, I didn't want to, you know, the imperial heroes in there, but the Bosnians. And also there's a story that the Osman tells to the Bosnian soldiers in the trenches of Galicia in 1916. Um, it's a long story to tell, but he, he, what the story means is that they're all nothings and nobodies, right? They're, they're the important people, the heroes, they, they have privileges, but they're also the first ones to get killed. And the, and the, the, the life of nothings and nobodies is just to stay alive, or the ambition is to stay alive. They have no access to power, they will not rule anything, and so they just want to stay alive. And so it's an epic a refugee epic, but the main characters are not great heroes. They're the nothings and nobodies, people who are erased from history, right? Not that sp the British spy in the book is based on a British spy who wrote a memoir called The Mission to Tashkent, which you can buy. It's reissued by Oxford University Press, right? Because he's part of the history of the greater British spies, right? And there's books and books and books about American spies and American greatness and whatnot. And my think. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying this is a prescriptive thing, but I think that what literature can do is imagine lives of nothings and nobodies who are entirely forgotten and erased from history. And I see myself as a, as a nothing and nobody. Uh, you know, minor successes notwithstanding, that we just vanish from history, because who will remember us if we don't remember ourselves in our stories? Mm. Your previous books, um, Nowhere Man, uh, question of Bruno, uh, the two memoirs, my parents, um, and this does not belong to you, as well as um, Book of My Lives, um, the stories, Love and Obstacles. In some ways, I feel like they're, they're narrativizing experience to some degree. They're not autobiographical, but they're making a coherent world um, which no longer exists. And I've since been to Sarajevo with you a bunch of times, and parts of Sarajevo that you, you left are there, and your friends are there, and, and whatnot. Um, but I feel like this book raises the stakes uh, almost on a cosmological level um, in, in terms of how it, says, how it looks at our ability to hold a coherent world together. Um, because as this book goes on and Osman and Pinto are traveling further and further from home, um, that they start to con contemplate the fact that Sarajevo may not exist anymore. And I, I wonder if, 
if you can talk a little bit about that, because you've been back to Sarajevo, you've been, you went back you know, shortly after the war, you've been back a lot, but the place that you left behind will never ever come back. And I, I wonder what that means for the project that you were previously engaged in. Uh, well, yes, um, it, you know, the past never comes back, but also there's a present. And so I have a present engagement and love and, and things to do with my friends in Sarajevo, which kind of, you know, um, uh, negates the need, uh, need for nostalgia, right? And so that I have a direct access now. And so I will never be young again, but I can do great things at this age with my friends in Sarajevo, old ones and new ones. There's a whole generation of people among my friends who I met after the war because they were kids when the war started, right? From you know, film directors and musicians and, and, and so on. Um, the initial idea, I sold this book on proposal to my British publisher in 2010. And in that book, they were friends, Osman and Pete. And the idea was um, that they would be longing to return to the city, right? But they would be moving further away from it. And as they were moving further away, that they would be kind of more nostalgic and imagining the city until it becomes a kind of a fantastic construction of their nostalgic imagination, mm -hmm. right? And they would never be able to get back to it physically, but also if they did, it would be an entirely different thing. And in those days, of course, you couldn't know. You couldn't check on the internet that the city still exists or call someone, right? So they could only hold it in their imagination. And Pinto, much later, finally writes a letter home from, from Sarajevo to find out who's alive, right? And, um, 20 years later or something. And so, um, but I thought that nostalgia would kind of, eventually I realized that nostalgia would have a steady pitch, that it's not varied enough, that is, and it's some, the kind of the instrument that I already played a lot in, in my books. Um, with my characters, and I thought at some point that love would be more varied, so that Pinto would long for Sarajevo, not as such, but a place where he could go back to with Osman, for which Osman would be required, as it were. Without Osman, it's not quite the same thing. Mm. And so, the, the, because I don't want to give away how, what happens, but you know, he doesn't make it back there, let's put it that way, <laughs> um, uh, but in, in some other way. And so, but someone else does. And, uh, and so, it becomes uh, what it means to me, or what it means to people who long for home. It, it was in some way, it, um, it is the essence of, it was a place of love, not just of youth and fun, right? You can have youth and fun in Ibiza um, one month every summer, right? And go out dancing, it's great. But it's, it's a locus of love, home. This is where people know when you're absent because there's a chunk of love missing or an object of love is missing. And so I wanted to compensate, as it were, narratively speaking, for the inability to return home by increasing the amount of love in their, in their travels. Mm -hmm. At one point, Journey. I don't think this gives away too much, but they're taking care of a child. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I, the, as, as powerful as the love story is in this book, I, I was equally, if not more, moved by um, Pinto's dedication. And you, you, you come to this crux with um, Pinto's uh, promises, I will protect you, and the child's promises, I will bring you home. Yeah. And I, I wonder if, if you can talk about that as a kind of immigrant's kind of dilemma in a way. Well, I mean, this is also what a lot of people do, particularly people who, um, when we're both parents are Bosnian, for instance, right? So that they, the family, my wife is American, and so half of my home is America, so to speak, or at least for my child. They, 
They don't see Bosnian as home because grandparents are not there and the, you know, the language is not there and so on. Um, it is that as a parent, you want to create a, a home for your child as a place of love. I don't mean a house or whatever. As a, as a, as a, as a domain of love. And then it is easy to connect in, in one's mind, in parents' mind, with the place where you were loved by your parents, which is home in the past life and all that. And so there's this kind of natural desire to take your child back to where you were a child and loved. Sort of a, a cycle of love is completed, but that becomes, um, it becomes a difficult choice for a lot of refugees because they have to leave that place to take their child to a better place. They might have a, a better life, right? But it also means taking them away from your home. They will be at home where you will not be at home. This is the, uh, you know, a plight of many refugees. Um, and so you would not want to stay with your child at home out of this love for your home because it, their life might not be as good as you want it to be. And it's a kind of dilemma that is familiar to, 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 to a lot of us. And so I wanted, once I decided that Osman and Pinto would be lovers, and one of the things that um, the meaning of children, as it were, could be this, this it's continuation of love. It's a continu embodied continuation of love. Right. And sometimes it's biological, but it doesn't necessarily have to be biological. It is the body that contains the love that created it. I often think with this book, that's one of the main reasons, main me meanings of the title, The World and All That It Holds. Yeah. You know, when you hold a child that you really love, it's like you, you are the universe. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I'm not here as a verification is, but Sasha is a very loving person. Uh, <laughs> he's often giving hugs which travel, which is confusing as a North American um, raised in California, where he puts his arm around me and then we just continue walking. And at, at first I thought, this is like a, this is a forward hug, it's a moving hug, it's like an escalator hug. And, and I, I, I feel like in the last 10 to 12 years, um, one of the things that's really lovely to watch your, as, your, as your friend, but also as an evolution of, your evolution as an artist, is, is your formal um, evolution is pushing towards greater and greater enmeshment in your, in, with other people, with, with collaborations. So, you know, you're working with David Mitchell and Lana Wachowski and Lily Wachowski on movies. You know, you're working on music with friends from high school. Um, what does that mean? I don't, I don't mean to doom you as a novelist, but it's very hard to be a collaborative novelist, in, in a sense, except for maybe your receptiveness to other people's ideas. It is hard, but it's not impossible. And so I, you know, the Lazarus Project, I developed a project with my best friend, Weber, who you know well, Melbourne yeah. Borzovic, who was in Sarajevo, who I talked, he was a, starting his career as a visual artist, and I, we went on a research trip and spent three weeks in, uh, in, in Western Ukraine and also in, in Moldova, researching for the book. And this resulted in 1,200 pictures, right? And I used 11 of them, right? But he has a whole, this, this, he still prints some of those, some of those negatives, right? And so for this book, halfway through the book, um, I talked to a friend of mine, and Bosnians might recognize the name, Damir Imamovic, who's a great singer of Sevda, the traditional Bosnian music. And he also comes from a kind of a dynasty of Sevda singers, like Elvis had a son and a grandson except in this um, genre. <laughs> and so he's the grandson. And so and he's, uh, um, he, um, he's, he discovered this, uh, discovered sort of he, what he does beautifully, other than being a beautiful musician, beautiful voice, sort of he discovered this, 
how would I put it, anti-patriarchal tradition in Sevda, right? It's usually traditionally sang by women and sort of encoded queer love and all that. And so I talked to him halfway through writing a book, why don't you record an album? Because in the, in the book, Pinta and Osman, they sing songs to each other. Pinta sings in, to him Sephardic songs, and Osman sings Sevda songs, and they, you know, uh, harmonically they're very similar. Uh, but they sing to each other, and sometimes they realize they know the songs, they're just different words in different languages, right? So I talked him into recording an album, which was um, released in May, and has the same name of the book, The World and All That It Holds, and it's released by Smithsonian Folkways, which is one of the best world music labels in the world. And so that was collaborative, and so, which means that I would send him chapters, and he would give me some notes, but also he would send me songs that he had written and that I kind of anachronistically inserted into the, the book or just um, um, pointed at some songs that I didn't know that I could put into book. And so he is present in this book. It's a, it's a collaborative thing. It's not as easy. I mean, writing and literature is not inherently collaborative as film is, right? No one can make a film alone. Um, and even music is very collaborative. You have, unless you are, have your own studio and you are, you know, which I don't, I have to find other people. And, I'm, and if, I don't know how to play instruments, really. I'm not a musician. So I have to find other people who will do it with me. And that expands, and they do things that I can't do, and they know things that I don't know. And it sort of expands your mind, and, and new possibilities open, and uh, people do things that I can't even imagine, because I don't know how to do that. And more and more, I'm interested in that. I think that the thing that trigger, triggered it is working on, on the scripts with, with Lana and David. First with Yasmin Lajbanic was my first collaboration. Um, but being involved in, the, in film is a collaborative, inherently collaborative artistic operation. And now I, I don't know. I, I think the idea that I would have to spend five years by myself writing a book is unbearable. I, I might write it, but it'll, it'll have to include some kind of collaboration. I think on, on that note, I, I want to just bring up one last thing, which is, um, you know, during the pandemic, some people were like, I'm going to do CrossFit. I just drank a lot of wine. <laughs> Sasha wrote a book of poems, you know, and then had one published in The New Yorker, immediately irritating all his poet's friends. You know, uh, you, 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 you wrote another script, and then you also uh, started training to be a DJ. And, well, so I started uh, producing music, and yes. so... Now I'm also learning to be a DJ. It's, so you, it's, you started producing music, and we're going to, I think as we finish this event, some of the music will start playing. Yeah. Um, and Don't touch too harsh. Um, but <laughs> if, if, if the feeling moves you, it would, it would make Sasha immensely happy. Plus, it also feels good if you just, <laughs> it, you know, yeah. started dancing. Shake your booty. But you don't feel, don't feel like you have to. But if you, no if pressure. You, no. There's no pressure, but if you dance, it, it's actually it's, it's good yeah. for the soul. Um, but, you know, I, I knew your band. I knew you were a punk person. You know, I saw your pictures. I thought, like, God, Sasha had a lot of hair. And you know, <laughs> I, I, I was not prepared for the music. It, it's, 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 like a, it, it's like Balkan Felicuti kind of trance beat sort of circular <laughs> things. I don't know. Where is it coming from? I don't understand this. Well, in the pandemic, I, I, was, I was in Princeton, and then Princeton dismissed all the students and half of the staff and half of the faculty. And so for a year, more than a year, I was alone in the building. And you see empty horizon, someone walks down the street, and you think, oh, who is that? 
<laughs> yeah. Is it a beginning of a zombie uh, invasion, or is it, you know, who could it be? Like, who is that? Uh, from the sixth floor, is this the loneliness was crushing? And I found myself compulsively imagining situations of collective joy, predominantly dancing. I love dancing with people. I always did. Even when I had a punk band, I was, I was always dancing and liked being in clubs and partying and concerts and all that. And I, and, um, and I started compulsively imagining this, and it, it sort of drove me to start making music, which is heavily inflected with dance music, but it's not quite club quality. It's hard to mix because there are too many instruments, like languages. <laughs> I, I pile things on. But it was that, sort of imagining a future in which uh, shared joy with other people would be available. This, this was my compulsive thought, and I kept doing it and figuring it out, and so, which also meant that I was kind of generating some joy for myself, figuring these things out. So I, I would make music and you know, do this. And, and uh, DJing, I learned, <laughs> and I'm practicing DJing a lot. And so in my office at Princeton alone, while people are you know, doing more reasonable things next door. Um, and I realized if I put my phone in the back of my pocket, I can get 12,000 steps <laughs> in my office. <laughs> And then I show people, look how physically active I am. <laughs> just this fat is like jumping up and down. But it was this, the body needed the engagement. One of the, the loneliness of pandemic also meant that, you know, your body was not engaging with other bodies outside mm. of your immediate surrounding, you know. And this is, I mean, this is, I guess, intellectual um, situation, but there are all these bodies in the room. I believe, and that's one of the things that I kind of formulated for myself with the book, what I care about is the body in history, right? Pinto's body passes through all that, and Osman's body, too, up to a point. But it's the bodies that have to survive history, right? Ideas survive one way or another. Someone has kept a manuscript, but the, the, the trick, or the important thing is to keep the body alive and keep the body loved and capable of joy. And the music provides that, I guess. It's also, I was longing for the synchronous presence of other people, right? This is the kind of synchronous joy, right? That everyone experiencing some form of joy, which is what dancing allows for. It's not the only thing, but music and dancing are really the, the top choice in that regard. On that note, I think that's a wonderful place to thank Sasha for coming to Norway. Um, All the way and to Norway. House of Literature for hosting him. Um, he's going to be signing books upstairs, um, I think Daniel or Lynn, I don't know if you have the music ready to start playing now or if it will be playing in between. I'm just going to just fill time until some music starts playing. And if it doesn't, <laughs> we I'm can gonna, start clapping. I, to start, you can just start clapping, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek. <laughs>